The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 27 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on the show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say on this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So you're listening to the show? You like cybersecurity news, and maybe you want to catch up on some recaps of all the TF7 radio shows to see which ones you want to listen to first. To do this, you go online to the Cybersecurity Hub at www.cshub.com, and you'll not only find weekly recaps of our show, but you'll also find some other current and up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news to keep you informed on what's going on out there. So the Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals of the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, if you want to check out some really cool articles, maybe just read some dope white papers, or just check out some recaps of, of, of the TF7 radio shows, and you want to get some really good, up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, your first stop every day should be the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So we got a little technical last week, but most importantly, we got right down to what really matters, and that's mitigating and managing risk with the CEO of Kenneth Security, Kareem Tuba. So we had a no-nonsense conversation about what organizations need to do to prioritize threats to their critical systems and data, and what they need to do to identify and mitigate vulnerabilities on their systems. So... I think a lot of people went on spring break last week and and they were spending some good quality time with the family or maybe just getting some me time away from it all. We all need that once in a while, and I saw that a lot, a lot of people were out. So I know that a lot of folks are getting back to work today. So for those of you who are at family fun parks or maybe on some tropical island paradise somewhere, maybe soaking in the rays, drinking rum punches with Banky Banks down in Anguilla or something, I don't know. You didn't get a chance to hear last week's show, you can always... Go to one of our Task Force 7 Radio's nine playback mediums, find Task Force 7 Radio, look for the last episode, episode number 26, named Why Can't Organizations Patch Their Networks, and Kareem Tuba, the CEO of Kenneth Security, appears on the second and third segments of the show. So, the most common question I get about the show still is, and even in our 27th week, still is, where can I find Task Force 7 Radio? That's right, believe it or not. People ask me that all the time. So I'm going to tell you where you can find us. You can find all prior Task Force 7 radio episodes for playback on iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, 
the show's own website at taskforce7radio.com, and of course, the number one internet talk radio producer in the world at voiceamerica.com. So we're everywhere. You can't miss us. If you Google Task Force 7 Radio, you'll get all your options. Check us out, folks. TF7 Radio Playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere, around the globe. So for those of you out there who are social media junkies, you can also learn about TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio, and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at at TF7 Radio. Especially check us out on Twitter, folks. Lots of information about TF7, our show, our guest, just cybersecurity in general. Check us out on Twitter, at TF7 Radio. So, we've got an awesome guest for you tonight. Vice President of Security Technology at Synopsys, Dr. Gary McGraw, is going to be with us on the show tonight. So, Gary is a globally recognized authority on software security and the author of eight best-selling books on this very same topic. His titles include Software Security, Exploiting Software, Building Secure Software, Java Security, Exploiting Online Games, and six other books that he's written. He's also the editor of the Addison Wesley Software Security Series. So Dr. McGraw has also written over 100 peer-reviewed scientific publications, and he authors a periodic security column for Search Security, and he's frequently quoted in the press on cybersecurity issues. Besides serving as a strategic counselor for top business and IT executives, Gary's on the advisory boards of Max Financial, The Intrepid, and Raven White. And get this, folks, he holds a dual PhD in cognitive science and computer science from Indiana University, where he serves on the Dean's Advisory Council for the School of Informatics. You know, it rhymes with that, that movie with Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. You know, he goes to the bar and he's like, my boy is wicked smart. So Gary produces the monthly Silver Bullet Security Podcast, which, by the way, is a fantastic cybersecurity podcast. And you know if I'm saying that it's a great podcast, folks, it really is a great podcast. Um, I, 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 I struggle to find a lot of good ones out there. This is a great one. Check it out. He's been doing it for 12 years, and his shows have downloaded millions of times, millions of times. Good stuff. Check it out. The Silver Bullet Security Podcast. So Dr. Gary McGraw renowned American computer scientist coming up on the second and third segments of the show. So, the Fox News website reports that the U.S. government is nothing short of a cybersecurity fiasco. That's right. Headlines. Cybersecurity fiasco. So three years after Chinese hackers stole security clearance files and other sensitive personal information of some 22 million U.S. federal employees, cyber defenses at the Department of Interior, which hosted White House Office of Personnel Management, that's OPM, servers targeted in the theft, were still unable to detect some of the most basic threats inside Interior's computer networks, including malware actively trying to make contact with Russia. Like, right now, trying to make contact with Russia. So in a 16-month examination of Interior's ability to detect and respond to cyber threats, evaluators from the department's Office of Inspector General, that's the OIG, folks, also discovered that Interior's technicians simply did not implement a sweeping array of mandatory government-wide defensive measures ordered up after the disastrous OPM hack. They didn't investigate blocked intrusion attempts. They left multiple compromised computers on their networks for months at a time. That's right, it's compromised. We'll just leave it there. We'll get to it when we get to it. This all according to a redacted OIG report that was issued last month. Now, 
So the interior has been slapped really, really hard. They're really embarrassed by this, I would imagine. I hope so. And they're really embarrassed by this OIG examination. So the OIG ordered the removal of all ultra-sensitive security clearance files from the interior to now be stored at the Department of Defense. How embarrassing is that? But that's not all. It gets worse. Get this. The OIG report made note of the following issues found during their examination. Sensitive data at Interior could be taken out of the department's networks without detection. Network logs show that a computer at the U.S. Geological Survey and Interior Bureau was regularly trying to communicate with computers in Russia. The messages were blocked, but the USGS facility staff did not analyze the alert. So no one paid attention. Okay, we blocked it. Okay, so what? We blocked it. No one's going to look into it. Unbelievable. Dangerous or inappropriate behavior by network users, including the downloading of pornography and watching pirated videos on Russian and Ukrainian websites, was not investigated. <laughs> what? So we got people in the G with work, working with classified information, downloading porn and pirated videos from Russian sites onto the same network that stores all the classified information. Nice. Computers discovered to be infected with malware were scrubbed as soon as possible and put back into use, meaning little or no effort went into examining the scope and nature of any such threats to the broader network. This happened, the OIG team noted, with one intruder they had discovered themselves. So, clearly, no intelligence-led strategy being implemented here at this department. I mean, intelligence is the key to success, folks. We all know that. And if you're not operating with an intelligence-led strategy, you're just throwing darts at a board. Okay. It seems that's what they were doing over there. But it goes on. Simulated intrusions or ransomware attacks created by the examiners were carried out with increasing blatancy without a response. In the case of ransomware, for nearly a month. I mean, really? Really? No response whatsoever? None? I mean, what's going on over there? It goes on. After the devastating OPM hack, which was discovered in April 2015, the department didn't even publish a lessons learned plan for its staffers based on the disaster. The OIG inspectors reported that Interior started to draft an incident response plan that, that month that, that it happened to deal with the future intrusions, but did not publish it until August of 2017, two months after the OIG had finished their lengthy field work. So they got hacked. And no one advised the troops how to make sure they didn't get hacked again, or maybe how to respond to it better or whatever. So distressingly, the report also noted that the department's cybersecurity operations team was not privy to a list of Interior's so-called high-value IT assets prepared by the chief information officer, quote-unquote, due to its sensitive nature. So in other words, the people tasked with protecting the Interior's most important information sites were not told where they were, or what they were, what was the most important data, and where it's at. Who had control over it? I mean, you can't protect the crown jewels unless you know where they are. And by the way, you also have to identify the golden key holders who have access to the crown jewels to take measures to mitigate the insider threat as well. So remember, I mean, attacks don't only come from the, the outside, folks. One of the most significant threat actors we have in our threat actor taxonomy is the insider. So clearly... No idea or insight how to assign precious resources to the most valuable and sensitive assets, including, and I quote this, IT systems, facilities, and data that are of particular interest to nation-state adversaries, such as foreign military and intelligence services. 
OIG noted that they are also often contain sensitive data or support mission critical federal operations. Wow. So in summary, this is a lesson on how not to respond to an attack, especially one that had such severe consequences. Remember, prevention is great, right? Prevention's great, and we should all re really continue our prevention efforts in the cybersecurity space. But organizations are going to be judged on how they respond and recover from various kinds of attacks, in my opinion. That's going to be the key. You have to invest in the whole cybersecurity response ecosystem. So every, every organization needs a comprehensive strategy that includes all the information security players in your organization. You have to have specific programs to identify and secure your most critical assets wherever they are, wherever they are, in the cloud, wherever. This is less in the government, but more in, in consumer businesses, I think about this. I think about we, the need to make security seamless and transparent to the end user as well. It's very important, and because especially when you're in a consumer business, you have to be very aware of the customer experience. I mean, anybody can lock down. I can lock down any kind of network, but we lose all our customers too. I mean, you wouldn't be able to steal anything or hack into anything, but we wouldn't have any customers left. The customer experience is important, and you need to be able to speak the language of the business and get them on board. I'm sure they're going to appreciate it. Trust me. We're going to talk a little bit in the next uh, episode or the next segment with, uh, with Gary about being a business enabler and what that means. So the fact that they didn't even have a response plan in place is just amazing to me. I, I, you, need, you don't only need to have a response plan, which the interior clearly did not have in this situation, it would appear from the OIG report, but you need to work tirelessly through active intelligence gathering, analysis, and assessment which they didn't do by just not investigating the, the, the computers that, were, that had malware on them or investigating computers that were trying to phone home to Russia. But you have to do that to get that assessment, to reduce the mean time, to detect and respond to incidents, and that means incidents of all types, at all levels of severity in your incident response topology, right? To, to weed out the noise. So with these kind of intelligence efforts, Obviously, you, you're in a better situation. You, you have the agility, the flexibility, the speed to win these individual battles, folks. This is going to make the difference between winning and losing. Oh, my God. Did you ever see this, this the Pacino movie, Any Given Sunday? The difference between winning and losing. <laughs> He's giving a prep talk to the team, and he talks about the margin of error. In, in life and in football, and he's all upset because he screwed up his life, and he's telling everybody, and he's on this team, we fight for that inch. We claw with our fingernails for that inch because we know when we add up all those inches, that's going to make the difference between winning and losing. <laughs> now, I can't make you do it. <laughs> I, I got to watch that movie now. Any given Sunday, baby. So look, security, in my cybersecurity especially, time is just like inches in football, man. The inches we need to, in football is equivalent to the time we need to win in cybersecurity. That's how I got to think about it. So to wrap up this segment, I think, you know, and I'll leave you with this. The official in the Inspector General's office declared to Fox News that there hasn't been a lot done in the wake of the devastating OPM hack. And to make matters even worse, the OIG official said it's likely that the same test that other federal agencies would yield the exact same results. I'm just lost for words, man. I don't even know what to say to that. 
So we're going to take a quick break, but before we do, I want to remind our audience that we're getting closer to launching the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. So I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for a few minutes from some words from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with the Vice President of Security Technology for Synopsis, Dr. Gary McGraw. Don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, the Vice President of Technology Security for Synopsys, Dr. Gary McGraw. Gary, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. Good morning. 
Hey, good morning. So, Gary, software is everywhere these days. Almost everything we do or touch in our daily lives is run by software. How has this changed our lives? Well, it turns out that the software that we're counting on to work, which, as you properly stated, is in everything and has worked its way into our cars and finances and comms and power grid and everywhere, um, has a problem, and that is that it, it's broken. <laughs> and broken software leads to all sorts of issues. Primary among those issues is security. And so I think that if we want to really attack cybersecurity properly, we have to focus on the root cause, which turns out to be broken software. So why, you know, my feeling is that a lot of this software is broken too. And why is that? Why do you think that it's broken right out of the gate and people haven't come to, you know, the conclusion that, hey, look, we need to do more, you know, uh, from, from the beginning with security around software? Well, there's sort of three reasons. I call them the trinity of trouble in some of my books. Number one is that software is complex. It's the most complex thing we've ever built as a species. Um, and there are literally hundreds of millions of lines of code that have to be right in order to software, you know, for software to be right. Uh, number two is extensibility. Um, the idea of a software a program is to be able to be flexible and changed later. And a lot of software is designed expressly with that kind of flexibility in mind. If you think about the Java virtual machine, that's a perfect example. So you might want to go back and add some stuff later or change the way things are, add some functionality, and software gives you a route um, for that. And then the third thing is, in the trinity of trouble, we've connected everything together. So everything is networked. And back in the old days of computer security, we used to like this idea of perimeter security, kind of drawing a boundary around a system. Software defeats that by being massively distributed. And so the notion of kind of being able to draw a boundary around software and do perimeter security um, becomes impossible. And in fact, you know, I, I always say it this way, perimeter security is great, but it does require one thing, that's a perimeter. <laughs> so those, those three kind of big things in the trinity of trouble um, extensibility, being networked, and complexity uh, all give rise to problems in software that very quickly escalate into huge security problems. So specifically around perimeter security, it's, it's, it's kind of a, apparent to me and some other of the security professionals who have appeared on this show that perimeter security is failing us. Yeah. So what, what are your thoughts on that and, and like our, our current perimeter security protocols? Where are we going with this? Well, I, I mean, I just said it, but I totally, I, it's, it's worth repeating over and over. I mean, if you think about um, security back in, say, 1530, <laughs> 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 the height of war technology was you cover your body with metal plates and you cover your horse with metal plates and then you get a stick and you ride over to your neighbor's house and try to knock him off his <laughs> If you're riding the three miles to somebody else's castle and you come across a moat, that's a huge problem because you're covered in metal. <laughs> so, you know, perimeter security is an idea that's been around a long time. The problem is that, you know, if we take our analogy and we stretch it to now, if you want to destroy a castle, 
you don't even worry about the moat. You just light it up, you know, with a laser from space with a satellite, and you just send in a drone with a Hellfire <laughs> missile or three and blow it to smithereens. And so, you know, the, the real issue with perimeter security is you have to be able to have a boundary all the way around your system. And modern systems are massively distributed. This movement that we have got to the cloud, um, you know, which really is a, a very shorthand way of saying somebody else's computer, means that perimeter security doesn't even work in most modern designs. So we have to move beyond that. We have to say, well, you know, I used to think about it this way when I started in computer security 20 years ago. There's broken stuff and there are bad people and we've been trying to put a thing between the broken stuff and the bad people forever. We call that thing a firewall. Um, and I came along 20 years ago and just had a simple question and that was, hey guys, why is the stuff broken? Why don't we make stuff that's not broken? That would be harder to attack. We can still put a firewall out there if we want, um, but let's just build stuff to be attacked. You know, we're, let's know that's going to happen and try to make things as robust and reliable and safe and secure as possible while we build it. So I hear a lot of people talking about encryption lately. Is, is cryptography the answer here to some of our problems? Is that going to save us? Well, it's not going to save us. It, it can be very helpful. I mean, the problem with cryptography when it comes to software security is developers and architects would love to have a magic thing that they can either sprinkle over software or bolt onto software to make it secure. But security is not a thing. It's a property. So, um, you know, the idea of sprinkling magic crypto fairy dust all over your software will not make it secure. Now, that said, using cryptography properly is important, and right. cryptography can be a very useful security feature. It's just important to realize that adding a security feature to your system doesn't make it secure as a property. And that's a subtle distinction that's often lost on people that build systems for a living. So one of the things I've been pounding away, especially the last few weeks on this show, is security from a risk man management perspective. How yeah. does risk management fit into this modern security mindset? Well, you have to figure out what is enough. You know, who are you trying to protect against? What kinds of resources can they bring to bear to attack your systems? And what should you do about it? You know, because there is such a thing as spending too much on security or having too much security in a system so that it becomes not very useful. You know, there's the old hilarious joke about the most secure computer in the world is one that is off, that has its discs sanded with a sandblaster and that is buried in a hole <laughs> 10 feet deep filled with concrete. It's incredibly secure, but it's also not useful at all. So obviously, we have to balance getting stuff done, which is the reason we have software and systems in the first place, against our security desires, and you know, make that balance appropriate. That turns out to be a tricky proposition that we've all been working on for many, many years. So one of the things when I look at a, an organization and the organizational construct of an information security team, mm -hmm. it always looks different from organization to organization. So who in the information security team, on the information security department, should, yeah. be, should be doing software security? Who should? Yeah, be? you know, that's a great question. So if you ask 10 years ago or 20 years ago, 
uh, you know, who's, who should do software security? If you ask the developers, they would point over to IT and they would say, well, the, the network security people should do it because we build great software and then, you know, it has to go on their network and all their, all their security constraints are just an impossible burden. So we can't stand those people. But if you went and asked to the network security people, hey, who should do software security? They would point over at the software people and in dev and they would say, well, we have this perfectly great network and it's all set up and it's pristine and then we have to add these, these things called users who screw everything up and the worst users of all are the ones with compilers. So we really can't stand those software people in dev. And they're both pointing at each other as the group that should be solving the software security problem. And, you know, there was really nobody responsible for it 15 years ago. Then we saw the advent of what I call a software security group. And it turns out that many, um, many information security departments have um, either inside them or closely associated with them, because sometimes they're in dev, a software security group, also known in some places as an application security group or a product security group. And that is a function that is a fairly modern thing, super critical for software security. Um, if you think about it from a management perspective, management 101, if you want to get something done, it's important to identify somebody to do that something and give them both the resources they need to do it and the responsibility for doing it, and then it'll get done. And that's what a software security group is about. Um, I know that many you know, multinational banks have um, software security groups today that are staffed and highly budget, budgeted, and they're doing things like um, building security into all the software being built at those multinational banks. And they're also making sure that the vendors that are supplying software are supplying software that's secure. So we've made a huge amount of progress um, in the last 20 years in software security. I'm really proud of that. So our audience here has, is, I think, wide-ranging in terms of their, their knowledge and expertise around cybersecurity. We have some people that listen that are just interested in cybersecurity, and then we have some people that I think that are cybersecurity experts. So can you talk a little bit about what the SSDLC lifecycle is, and then what are the software security touch points in that lifecycle? Yeah, sure. So um, there are many ways to build software. And people call this the SDLC, which is the Software Development Lifecycle. And you might have heard of Agile or Waterfall or um, even CICD, you know, continuous integration, continuous development. The, um, the idea is you have a process that you use to build software. And I'm not here to tell you which process is best because that's kind of like religion. A lot of people have different religions and different ways of <laughs> approaching the SDLC. But from a software security perspective, there are seven things that you should do in your software development lifecycle, regardless of whether it's Agile or, uh, or Waterfall or Spiral or whatever. It doesn't really matter. Um, and those, of those seven things, I'm going to tell you three of them, and I'm going to tell you that in the order that they should be adopted. Um, number one is code review with a tool. So you actually look at the software that you're developing, sometimes while you're typing it in, but often at the build stage, looking for bugs that will lead to security problems. There are automated tools that do code review 
like Synopsys's um, Coverity tool, which, uh, you know, Synopsys is my company, so we sell these tools. But this is a technology that's been around for 20 years, um, just about, and we've made a lot of progress in making these tools work. So the one thing we know is regardless of SDLC, every single software project will have code. So the idea of actually you know, looking at that code for defects and getting rid of those defects is super important. That's number one touch point. Number two is architecture risk analysis, sometimes called threat modeling. The idea is that not only do we have bugs in our implementation, but we may well have flaws in our design as well. And if we want to secure our code properly in whatever SDLC it is that we have, we need to pay attention to the architecture as well as to the implementation. And so architectural risk analysis is the number two touch point. It's a lot more difficult because there are not automatic tools for doing that and it takes a lot of expertise to do that right. Then number three is gonna surprise a lot of people in um, cybersecurity because it's number three and it's not number one or number two. Remember one is code review, two is architecture risk analysis, and three is penetration testing. For whatever reason, a lot of cybersecurity people would like the third most important thing to be number one. And penetration testing is something that we should do, but it's more important that we're, be, that we're able to identify bugs and fix them and identify flaws and fix them than it is to do pen testing. Um, now, that said, pen testing is super important and you should do it at the end of the life cycle. It's better if you try to get rid of the bugs, all the bugs you can before you have a pen test and all the design flaws, because going back after the fact and fixing those things later is more expensive. In fact, it's too expensive to do that way. So those are the top three touch points. There are others. This is all written down in a book I wrote in 2006 called Software Security, which still sells a lot of copies to this day. It's a very relevant book, and it really helped to um, put a technical foundation to the field of software security and application security 12 years ago. So I encourage you to check that one out um, if you're wondering about what the other touch points are or what it means to apply those first three touch points, code review, architecture, risk analysis, and penetration testing to your own work. So the message here is that it's extremely important to get security right at the design phase. Yes. Or is it going to cost you a ton of money? <laughs> design first. I mean, look, if you have a bad idea, guess how much it costs for you to change your mind? Right. <laughs> a lot. So the number one thing for security is get rid of your bad ideas. <laughs> right. The number two thing is get rid of your bad code. And then the number three thing is pen test. Make sure you did all that right. So let's talk about BSIM for a minute. What does BSIM stand for and what does BSIM mean? Well, BSIM used to stand for building security in maturity model. But really, BSIM has come to just mean BSIM these days. Um, and what it is is a measuring stick for software security. The idea is to measure uh, the capabilities of a software security group and find out how well they can help produce secure software. So the BSIM doesn't measure a particular application. It measures the SSG that we talked about before. Um, 
the BSIM is just about ready to turn 10. It's a decade old, um, which is really cool. And we're now at the eighth version of the BSIM. We call it BSIM 8. And what it is is a framework for understanding what activities a software security initiative should have inside it and how many firms out there in the world actually do these activities. So there's an impressive number of firms that are involved in the BSIM community, uh, including lots of uh, big giant banks, um, Citibank, Bank of America, um, CIBC are some examples, and J.P. Morgan Chase, Comerica, um, a whole bunch of software houses, in and a whole bunch, including like Oracle, for example, and uh, Dell, and and many others, Cisco, uh, a whole bunch of companies that are security companies that make security stuff like F-Secure and Cryptography Research and uh, McAfee, and even chip manufacturers like Qualcomm and NXP uh, and, and others. And so what you see is this huge community, it's 109 firms that are all um, working together to improve the field of software security through scientific measurement. And the BSIM is a science project that sort of escaped the lab many years ago and has now been really turned into a de facto standard for software security in the world. It's sort of successful beyond the wildest dreams I had for it. Um, and we're pretty proud of what we've built and we're proud of how people are using it today. So when we think about BSIM, what does a modern software security framework look like? How do we describe yeah. it? Well, we've identified 12 practices, and those are in four domains, but some of the practices will be pretty obvious, like we talked about just now, code review and architecture analysis and penetration testing. It turns out that three, those three things, which are three touch points, are also three of the 12 practices in the BSIM. Very briefly, the 12 practices are strategy and metrics, compliance and policy, training, those are all sorts of governance things. Um, attack models, security features and designs, and standards and requirements. Those are sorts of think knowledge piles that you need to approach software security. Then we have architecture analysis, code review, and security testing. Those are all touch points, which we talked about just a minute ago. And then we have deployed software, which includes the practices penetration testing, software environment, and configuration management and vulnerability management. So that kind of framework of 12 practices um, has an associated 112 activities that are divided among those 12 practices. And then we can go out and, and discover through observation whether those activities are being used in a particular firm or a particular major PL division of a firm. Uh, and we can create a score. Um, along with associated visualization and a, a work, you know, a scorecard that we can then use to compare one firm to all the other firms in the BSIM. And the BSIM, you know, has grown pretty big. When we started out in BSIM 1, we had nine firms. Now we have 109 firms. And just to give you some idea of the scale here, we're talking about describing the work that is being done in software security to, uh, to help 290,582 developers. 
So this is a seriously big project. That's a big with project. About, you know, 4,000 or so, full 5,000 actually, is 4,769 wow. um, full-time software security people, some in the SSG and some that are members of other groups but are really doing software security full-time. So you can see that, you know, this field that didn't exist 20 years ago has now turned into something that has a de facto standard and a measurement capability and a big community of practitioners that are professional um, in the BSIM community. And it's just really cool how much progress we've made um, over the last couple of decades. That's great. So Gary, we have to pause right there for a quick break, but don't go away folks. Lots more to talk about with the Vice President of Technology Security for Synopsys, Dr. Gary McGraw after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with our guest, the Vice President of Technology Security for Synopsys, Gary McGraw. So, so Gary, I, I hear you talk a lot about CISO tribes. And so talk to us about what a CISO tribe is. What's that all about? What's, what's a CISO tribe? Well, I spent some time telling you about the BSIM in the previous segment. And um, basically what we did was this. I said, gosh, I wonder what CISOs actually do. And I read a lot of stuff about CISOs that were stuff written by people that weren't CISOs who didn't really know any CISOs who were just basically making stuff up. 
And I said, how about if we just do a CISO thing for, you know, a BSIM-like thing for CISOs? <laughs> and so we did that over the last two years. Um, and we published in January this thing called the CISO Report, which is a BSIM-like study of 25 CISOs in particular. And then what we did was gather data from these 25 firms um, and then uh, see what the data had to say. And what the data had to say was there are four kinds of CISOs out there that we have called tribes. And there are ways of figuring out what tribe you're in as a CISO or a CISO in a firm. So I got to give a quick shout out to the participating firms. Um, here are some of the 25 firms that participated. ADP and Aetna and Allergen and Bank of America, Cisco, Citizens Bank, Eli Lilly, Facebook, Fannie Mae, Goldman Sachs, HSBC, Human Longevity Institute, J.B. Morgan Chase, LifeLock, Morningstar, Starbucks, and U.S. Bank. As you can hear, it's quite an impressive list of firms sure that are from a whole bunch of different domains. Um, and so what we were interested in finding out is, what is it like to be a CISO all day? What do you do? How do you get measured? How do you report to the board? Um, what do you do about staff and staff development? What kinds of security controls are necessary to put in place? And how do you measure those things and govern those things? So that was the idea behind the work itself. So that's really cool, especially the fact that they're from different sectors. I mean, you get a whole bunch of different opinions and different problem sets, I'm sure, from people. Exactly. You know what's funny, though? We found out that, that there's not a sector that is associated with a tribe or even the size of the firm. Um, so these tribes that we've identified, you know, which are sort of ranked from uh, tribe four at the bottom to tribe one at the top, uh, are something that cross cuts against both vertical and firm size and all that other stuff. It's kind of interesting. It, that came as a surprise to us. But just like in the BSIM, we let the data tell us what's going on instead of trying to impose our will on, on what's going on out there in the world. So everyone's concerned with costs when it comes to information security, just like anything else. And I think many times the information security teams that I see in corporate many times sit in the CAO organization and they, yeah. they have, obviously they have their own cost center many times as well. So yeah. can you talk about security as a cost center and what that means? Yeah, this is tribe four actually. And this is sort of a problematic tribe to be in. Um, if you're a CISO and you're in tribe four, uh, you're only being operated and you're operating security as a cost center. So what that means is the tribe is often overwhelmed and under-resourced, in most cases, security leadership isn't really a CISO, like they, they exist under several levels of, of management and are kind of in the middle management, and executive management is treating security as a cost center. So security consumes budget, but they never really drive budget creation, and you know they have sort of a glass ceiling imposed on them. So they don't get to go ask for budget even, um, they just are given budget. <laughs> and so they really don't have very much power at all. It's kind of relegated to plumbing. Um, if you think about the help desk in a normal IT situation, you know, what happens is the CIO or somebody says, here's your budget for the help desk, now go do it. Um, security is treated like that. So that's kind of the, the most problematic tribe to be in. And in fact, in our study, there were five firms that were in tribe four. 
you know, five CISOs of that sort. And it's re it really is quite a popular tribe. I think that out there in the world, there are lots and lots of uh, tribe four CISOs. So let's talk about it from the dreaded compliance perspective, right? I mean, so a lot of you, you talk to some CISOs out there and you start talking about, you know, things from a compliance perspective and they want to chug bleach, right? It's just like, oh, yeah. what, what does security from a compliance perspective mean? So tribe three, um, the second tribe up the kind of the ladder um, is security is compliance. And I got to say this, compliance is not always a bad thing. It's a boon and it's a bane um, because you should be compliant. It's, it's just a really low bar. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and some organizations have a hard time getting over that low bar. I got to make this clear. Getting over that low bar is important. Uh, and so the compliance tribe sort of intentionally leverages compliance requirements to make some security progress. But, you know, they, the problem is that all by itself, compliance is not good enough. It doesn't keep all the bad guys out. That means it's kind of a bare minimum standard that you have to reach. Um, and it's also a bar that some firms just have not ever gotten over and they're still struggling to become compliant. So what we see in Tribe 3 is that in many cases, previous security leadership was replaced at the same time that some compliance regime was imposed from the outside, probably because there was a big crisis. Uh, and what, you know, there, there had been historical underinvestment in security that eventually just reached this crisis proportion. And unfortunately, what happens is this leads firms to continue to underinvest in security, even in the face of security compliance requirements. And here's why. That's because the compliance spending of today, you know, after the crisis is in many cases more than the pre-crisis spending of yesterday but it's not enough. So they were spending a dime instead of a dollar in the past, and now they're super pleased to be spending a quarter, but really they should be spending a dollar. <laughs> so they're spending two and a half times more than they used to be spending, but they're not spending enough. Um, so CISOs in the compliance tribe tend not to be really deep technical people. They often are very strong management and leaders. You know, they're, they're in, in senior management uh, gravitas and leadership skills, uh, which sometimes in Tribe 3 can lead to a situation where limited resources are being really properly allocated and progress is being made, but technical debt is still accumulating. So Tribe 3 is a little bit complicated um, if you think about it. In our study, there were seven firms that were in Tribe 3. So how about from a technology perspective? I mean, where's the magic button that's going to solve all my problems? Well, if you think about these tribes in kind of space out there, let's start on our left hand. Tribe four is like, you know, as far over as you can stretch your left hand. In fact, maybe it's the wall over way beside your left hand. So way over there. Right. Tribe three is more like, you know, uh, where your left elbow is. <laughs> um, you know, so tribe four over by the wall, tribe three kind of like where your forearm is. Tribes one and tribes two are on your right hand, tribe, you know, if you have your, your thumb towards your body, tribe two is your thumb and tribe one is your pinky. So tribes one and two are very close together. Three is a little farther apart and four is way out the door. Uh, and tribe two is the security as technology tribe. This is CISOs that have moved well past compliance. They're not bounded by that at all. Um, and 
often the CISOs in um, Tribe 2 are technologists. They started their career as alpha geeks, and the world still thinks of them as alpha geeks, and so they overemphasize technical aspects of security. So these people bring the technology hammer to bear on every problem first. Um, of course, a technology CISO sets out to be a good business person, but maybe they're not, you know, really thought of as a senior executive business person, but rather as still an alpha geek. So learning the business ropes the hard way through trial and error and raw experience turns out to be an ongoing challenge for these guys. But because technologists like to solve hard problems, one of the things that they do is take on the stickiest business challenges directly themselves. Uh, and so sometimes you'll, you'll find a Tribe 2 CISO getting up at 5 a.m., say, to read the most recent threat intelligence stuff and figure out what to do that day. Um, and an undersupply of kind of business acumen leads to what we call the Superman syndrome. You know, so instead of delegating, they'll, they'll get down into the weeds in a particular problem like I was talking about. Um, but security as technology are some very, very strong CISOs, alpha geeks, good business people, um, and they have a very solid security stance. And sometimes firms are really attuned to having a Tribe 2 uh, CISO. And so being in Tribe 2 is not something you might not, I mean, it might be a good end goal for your organization. There were eight firms in our study of 25 that uh, ended up in Tribe 2. All right, well, how about the first Tribe? The one I like to talk about the most is security as a business enabler. What's yeah, this is that? the key. This is like the, the top of the mountain. So you've evolved from uh, the security mission of compliance to commitment. Even the board and all the senior execs are committed to security. This means a firm's culture really prioritizes security and compliance just you know happens as a side effect. So the board of directors has moved past compliance and uses a risk management approach, which we talked about in the first segment to provide some kind of oversight. Security is not really just a technical problem and the business focused approach of Tribe 1 CISOs gets lines of business to participate in the security mission because they see themselves in the solutions that have been built by the security as enabler tribe. So we have a staff balance often between technologists and executive and it's carefully constructed. And you know, regardless of whether CISOs in the enabler tribe are deep technical geeks. Today, they look exactly like their senior executive peers from a business standpoint. So they have a seat at the table and they have the same amount of power and influence as everybody else who's a senior executive. And like good senior executives, CISOs in this tribe proactively try to get in front of the problems that they see it coming up, um, both internally and externally, by intentionally influence the standards by which they're gonna be judged. Um, and we saw that as a commonality among Tribe 1. So Tribe 1 is just, you know, the ultimate place to be in terms of being a CISO. And there were five firms of 25 that we found uh, in Tribe 1. Together, these four tribes can help um, describe maybe a way to uh, do career development as a CISO. But it's important to realize that these tribes are defined not just by the individual CISO, but by the firm too. So it's kind of a mix of stuff the firm does, the culture of the firm, and the power and strength and capabilities of the individual CISO. 
And those are the four tribes that we found when we, when we looked out there in the world. Well, this is interesting stuff, Gary. It was a pleasure having you on the show. I hope you come back again to visit yeah, us soon. Absolutely. It's my pleasure to, to, to help out. And I hope that people are, are really enjoying listening to this stuff. You know, you can find all the information uh, on the internet about the CISO project and also about the BSIM. Um, if you have any trouble, just pop me an email. I'm really easy to find. Where do they go find out? Where do they go to find out about the CISO project? The CISO project. Um, let me think about the U- the best URL for that. Let's see if I have one. Actually, probably the best thing to do. Um, let's start with the BSIM. Go to bsim.com for the BSIM community, and you can download the BSIM. Uh, directly from there. The CISO report, here is a small URL, a short one. So it's bit.ly, you know, bit.ly slash CISO dash four tribes. So that's a, a quick way to get to the CISO report. All of these things, by the way, are published for free under the Creative Commons. And so we encourage you to read them and use them and make them your own and get involved with the communities that we're developing around both of these things. Great stuff, Gary. Thanks so much again. Appreciate you. My pleasure. Hey, so we've run out of time, folks, but before we go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.